that's one of the key things that in building some of the these online environments normal safety procedures the fire extinguishers of the online uh, environment don't seem to have been included Hi everyone and welcome to the Making Sense of Tech Law podcast. In the UK, things are feeling hopeful COVID-wise. Booking restaurants in hope has begun again. Our days stuffed into our homes appear to be drawing to a close, irreversibly, as we're constantly told. And yet, there is a sense that our relationship with the internet has changed forever. Our dependence on it seems irreducible and the importance of regulating it seems ever more important. So today we are talking online harms. What are they? Have we been tackling them in the wrong way? And how can we tackle them in the right way? And with me to talk about this is Lorna Woods, Professor of Internet Law at the University of Essex. Lorna's work is preeminent in her field, and she has given oral evidence to a number of parliamentary committees, including the House of Lords, the House of Commons, and the International Grand Committee on Disinformation and Fake News. Today, she's talking to the ever so slightly less prestigious Making Sense of Tech Law team, and we will be focusing on her current research project with Carnegie UK on reducing harm arising on social media, for which she was awarded an OBE, and which has played a major role in shaping the approach of upcoming government legislation in the area of online harms. Lorna, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you for inviting me. So I guess I wanted to start by just asking a little bit about online harms, because it's kind of a broad term, isn't it? Um, yes, there, there is a danger that you can try and use the phrase to solve all the problems in the world. Uh, and I think it's worth recognising that in real life, we have had a, a range of different legal techniques that we have used to solve different sorts of problems in real life. So I, I think we should be wary of looking for silver bullets. We shouldn't be unrealistic. Having said that, I think there are probably distinct characteristics of the online environment that perhaps do need tackling and tackling as, as a distinct environment that does not replicate what happens in real life. And I think if we talk about a, a systematic approach or a systemic based approach to regulation on this, then that's what online harms is about. And that systemic approach, tackling the frameworks which allow an environment where these harms can be created, that's where your work comes in, isn't it? Yeah. My own work is with Carnegie UK Trust and working with uh, someone there called uh, William Perrin and with the help of uh, an associate there, Maeve Walsh. Um, we started thinking about this back in 2016, uh, I think, uh, before we got Carnegie UK Trust involved. Um, but when we uh, developed the project, 
one of the things we were talking about was the need to look at the harm that could be caused by the operation of, of some of the platforms. So our work, though we, di we didn't call it online harms, our work was very much about trying to reduce harms in the online environment without breaking them. So yes, our work was about harms, but some of the harms relate to the safety of the online environment. And I think that's one of the key things that in building some of the, these online environments, normal safety procedures, the fire extinguishers of the online uh, environment don't seem to have been included. Okay, and so is there some way for us sort of, I guess, thinking in a really loyally way now to delineate those harms to actually go, okay, this is right and this is wrong, or is it part of the problem that these harms are ambiguous? Well, I, I suppose it. we can talk about illegal content online because quite clearly the criminal law can apply online just as much as it can apply offline. And the ASA, in terms of regulation, is happily trying to uh, extend its self-regulatory scheme to influencers on the like. So clearly those types of laws apply. But in terms of looking at um, the harm to um, the objects or subjects of speech uh, in the online environment, I'm not sure that that is helpful. What Carnegie UK Trust proposed and what I think has become an element of what the government has adopted is that the platform providers should do a risk assessment as to the consequences of the operation of their platforms. And risk is going to be about the likely adverse consequences to a potential victim. If you stick categorization of speech into criminal and harmful but legal, which is the terminology used, you're using those as a proxy for identification of harm. And the problem is that the criminal law is not really designed to measure harm it, or, or, or not directly. What it is doing is identifying what society wants to penalise, which is not the same thing as assessing whether something is, is harmful or not. And I think the, the Law Commission in its recent work on communications offences, Section 127 of the Communications Act, Section 1 of the Malicious Communications Act, has recognised that there has been a bit of a, a disjuncture there, that it's, it's a poor proxy, if you like. So my concern was that if you define the regime by reference to, to criminal, or harmful but legal, you're actually just sticking a characterization problem in the mix and not really looking at 
um, yeah, whether, whether things are harmful, or more particularly if we are worrying about the impact of um, the design of platforms, you're not looking at how the design of platforms actually affects harm. Perhaps an example would, would give an, uh, uh, an idea of what I'm talking about. Um, this is a, an obvious example that's been talked about quite a bit, but this is the recommender systems you find on a lot of platforms. So it could be recommender for particular content, you know, the good old autoplay you get on YouTube, but it could be recommender for groups. Here, join this group that you see on Facebook. So they're having a big impact on what people see and what people engage with. And so that is, if you like, if you've got harmful content, uh, whether it's criminal or not criminal, they're potentially extending or increasing its impact. They're amplifying the problem. And just categorizing content uh, as criminal or as harmful but legal doesn't necessarily get you into that discussion. It also doesn't really get into a discussion about what some people call surveillance capitalism and its consequences. So this is the idea that you're somebody who wants to make um, revenue of content, whether you're a clickbait farm or whether you're an influencer, and you're going to be affected in your choice of content by what people like or by what gets pushed up those recommender algorithms. So there is a way that you can say that the actual functioning of the platform is affecting the content even before it's created. And certainly that doesn't fit neatly into a model which is implicitly saying the platforms have no impact on the content. Let's wait till the, impact, uh, the content's created and then um, assess whether it's criminal or not and then decide what to do with it. And by the time you have got to that point, you're very limited in what you can do with it. So I, I guess it's about the systematic rather than yeah. potentially getting into this debate of um, platform yeah. and publisher and should this content be taken down, shouldn't it be taken down? Are they responsible? Are they not responsible? In your opinion, once we get to that place, we failed to address the critical issue. Well, we, we, the problem with content is that on the internet, you've got an awful lot of it. And lots more is being uploaded every second. So content-based regulation is actually very difficult. It is not, you've got a, di a different sense of scale than you do say if you're looking at um, advertising regulation, broadcasting regulation, or even you know defamation, uh, which is all tied to particular instances of content. And you've also got the problem that different states may well have different views as to what content is 
bad or bad enough to prohibit. And then you've got the problem that the assessment of it is going to be context specific as well. So that is meaning that it is hard to do regulation at scale if you focus on content. And then you've got the other problem, which is it doesn't look at the role that the platform is, whether inadvertently or not, playing in uh, incentivizing content, in amplifying content. And it also means, if you're focusing on content, that your only response usually is going to be either take down or ban the speaker, which in a way are, are sort of techniques of last resort. If you look at the system, a lot of this is um, about who sees what. And so if you can affect information flows, you're possibly taking the pressure off relying on takedown. That if you're not amplifying stuff that's harmful but legal, then it is less of a concern. If you are providing adequate tools to users to curate their own information environment, particularly for harmful but uh, legal content, then that is a concern. So particularly for that content that is not perceived as being bad enough to criminalise, but is probably uh, less desirable or problematic for certain groups, then if you deal with information flows, you're not moving to that takedown mindset. So one example of that is the taking down of Donald Trump's tweets. In your view then, was that not really addressing the problem, taking down his tweets, but not changing the way that audiences are built and followings are gathered on these platforms? Well, well, I think so. I, I suppose the, the case of Donald Trump is um, quite a, a difficult one because arguably he was inciting a riot, which is probably criminal content and probably therefore should be taken down. But I agree with you that the riot might not have eventuated had the systems not been there, building up an audience, winding up an audience. So up until now, we've kind of been talking about how it's basically inadequate to say that content should either be taken down or kept up, that platforms should either be responsible for that or not responsible for that, and highlighting that there really needs to be um, a look into the systems of how these platforms operate, what kind of algorithms they use. Now moving on, I, I just want to sort of get you to outline your proposals, which are really innovative and something new in the space. Yeah, well, what we did uh, was we proposed that there should be a statutory duty of care. And in selecting this model, we look to the Health and Safety at Work Act 1974, which requires employers to ensure that workplaces are safe 
um, so far as reasonably foreseeable and so far as practicable. So caveats around that, we're not in the perfect universe, but just to, you know, exercise some due diligence as, as the other phrase is. And this is what we suggested that platforms should do with their design of their product. Remember, these are artificial environments that every pixel in a way is a response to the design choices and the business choices that the platform operators have made. So they can control this uh, to um, a, a large degree. So our proposal was they should look to see whether um, design features or the absence of tools or a weakness in their complaints processes were likely to lead to harm to their users. And this is harm understood sort of at a more abstract level. It's not looking to show causation in any one particular instance. It's not about complaining about one particular item of content. It's just saying, guys, do you think this is safe? Um, and we, I suppose, were minded to take this approach because, in a way, social media platforms in particular are a form of space where we go and do a, a whole range of different things. We interact with different groups of people, um, you know, sort of we, we shop. Uh, we socialize, we learn, we sell, you know, all sorts of things. And in a way that variety of activity doesn't just fit into the idea of publisher. It is much more like sort of workspaces, and that includes shopping malls and, uh, and the like, which are quasi-public spaces. I'm not meaning here public space in the idea of standing on a soapbox on High Park Corner or a debating chamber somewhere. But what I mean is these are places where the public go. And obviously looking to the law of tort, a duty of care to regulate this area is something that hasn't really been done before. What were your reasons for that? What are the advantages of applying that to online harms? I, I suppose there's there's a number of um responses to that <laughs> one is the pragmatic one was that we we took a model an existing model from health and safety at work uh, which has been there since what 1974 so that's a while and it seems to have worked in terms of the standard that it imposes on um people and in terms of the 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 method that that it requires which is essentially you know just making um employers or or the operators of, of of spaces um exercise a little i suppose legally understood common sense so it it, it struck us as a, a reasonable or a, a fair standard that it's not saying strict liability, but it is saying you can't willfully ignore stuff just because that might affect your bottom line. 
So it, it seemed uh, a reasonable standard, a proven uh, technique. And it's interesting if you're looking at legal doctrines because the Health and Safety at Work Act is obviously statutory. So we are suggesting a statutory duty of care. And this allows you to tweak, if you like, some of the um, elements that you would find in, in the tortious duty of negligence. And the one that would be a biggie is obviously the approach seen in tort towards um, mental suffering, emotional damage, the threshold there is very, very high. And if you are looking, say, at um, some of the likely harms, then they, they might not satisfy that common law tortious threshold. So in a way, having it in a, in a statute allows Parliament the opportunity to, to cure that, if you like. And of course, there's the, an incredible variety of platforms, video game platforms, social media platforms. Yeah. How does this approach allow you to regulate all these different kinds of platforms and even those which we might not have thought of yet? Virtual reality worlds where we spend our whole life, for instance. It is um, future proof uh, if we take the Health and Safety at Work Act as a, as a model. Um, a couple of years ago, someone in the House of Lords asked the question of the Health and Safety Executive whether AI at work fell within the Health and Safety at Work Act. And the answer was yes. If it's a tool at work, then it has to be safe. So that's an example of that old regime just being deployed by it in a new context. And, and the key thing is that it doesn't specify what the problems are. It, it, it sets the objective in broad terms as to what you've got to um, aim for, but it's not saying uh, anonymity is automatically bad in all circumstances. It is not saying chatbots should be banned. Or, or whatever the, the, the concern of the day is. Are deep fakes incompatible with democracy? So it, it allows the, the underlying question to be asked, as you say, of a range of technologies in a range of circumstances. And so that allows flexibility and future-proofing. The danger is, of course, that it's all too vague. And we had envisaged a regulator in the mix. And part of what we thought the regulator could do is to provide more guidance and clarity as to what the vectors of harm might be. So what to think about if you're doing a recommender engine or algorithm, what to check if you're looking at anonymity, those sorts of things, so as to um, not leave companies uh, wandering around in a fog. And I think that's particularly important if you're looking at startups um, and, and small, medium-sized enterprises. 
I suspect the big guys will have their own research teams and their own view on how they want to do things. So one thing we suggested was that these codes should operate, operate on a comply or explain basis. And this is seen in financial services, which is you've got an outcomes oriented um, regulatory system. This is how we think you get to that point, but you don't have to do it. Instead, you have to explain why you think what you're doing achieves the same end. So in that sense, we can let Facebook or Instagram, same thing really, Twitter and the like, do what works for them, bearing in mind they're in global markets, but to provide ideas of good practice for startups. And in terms of the jurisdiction of this regime, one of the problems obviously with regulating content is that anybody can post from anywhere in the world and it's difficult to track people down, especially if they're anonymous. Does this way of regulating online harms fare any better in that respect? And is nothing going to be perfect until we have a truly international regime on this issue? Well, it's not really where the user is, it's where the company is. So, you know, and it's not so much about, you know, I don't know what the content's about, it's how the platforms are designed. I do think it's going to be easier for everybody concerned, though, if some common understanding can be adopted with regards to a systems-based approach. This is not saying everybody's got to, uh, you know, legislate for a duty, a statutory duty of care, but to say that, you know, the effective way to do regulation is to look at the design of the platforms and not try to harmonize content standards across the globe. So that's just not gonna happen. So I think, you know, that would be desirable. Interestingly, the EU uh, in its Digital Services Act proposal has um, suggested that very large online platforms should be subject to a duty of due diligence. So that does seem to be taking a similar approach. And the Digital Services Act does not define um, criminal content at all. It is a, a proposal all about making systems work more effectively. So I guess looking at the systems behind these companies is gaining traction in a couple of different jurisdictions and might even become the in-mode of regulation around the world. But that was the case, wasn't it, with the GDPR and data protection law around 2017, we all thought it was going to solve the problem. Competition law. And all of these ones have, to an extent, not lived up to the hype. As we were saying before, there's no silver bullets in this area. So can we really have high expectations of success? Or is it always going to be a piecemeal approach, each different area of law doing its bit to regulate these large companies and, and regulate 
online harms more effectively? I, th I think that's right. Um, and you see that also in the UK. The Competition and Markets Authority um, is likely to get some more powers. It's setting up a specialist digital markets unit. Um, we see the hoo-ha in Australia um, with the, um, the impact of the uh, large platforms on the traditional media. Uh, and the EU has also got a proposal for um, a Digital Markets Act um, aimed again at these gatekeeper platforms. Lorna, thank you so much. It's just been a great conversation talking to you about online harms. Obviously, your proposals are not not purely proposals, but have had a real influence on government policy. How have you seen that develop in government policy? How have they weaved in your ideas? And how confident are you of seeing some kind of duty of care be made law in the near future? Well, the uh, the UK government published a white paper, the online <laughs> the online harms white paper in April 2019, and that seemed to take some of the ideas that we talked about, and in particular the idea of a, a statutory duty of care. Uh, obviously, that's quite a broad phrase and, and, and could mean quite a range of things. Um, the government um, then uh, consulted on that white paper, which is slightly unusual. They normally consult on green papers. Uh, some people have said the online harms white paper is more like a, a, a spearmint paper, stripy green and white. Um, but they published um, an interim response early 2020 and the full government response just before Christmas on the same day as the EU issued its Digital Services Act proposals. No competition there, guys. Um, so the government is still minded to uh, bring forward a bill. Um, but the timing on that is slipping. We now understand that we are looking at the next session, uh, though no idea currently when the next session will start, and that there will probably be pre-legislative scrutiny. So realistically, a bill is likely to turn up late this year, possibly even early 2022. The full government response was still based on um, statutory duty of care, but they were um, limiting it. So they were limiting it to dealing with harmful content, uh, sorry, dealing with criminal content. And as regards children, harmful but legal content. They also distinguish between uh, providers on the basis of their riskiness. So if you're providing a risky service, then you also have to take action vis-a-vis um, -vis harmful but legal content uh, in relation to adults. It seems that this is going to be somewhere in the region of as regards harmful but legal content, requiring platforms to enforce their terms and conditions. 
So maybe a statutory duty of care between online users and large social media platforms will be coming to a statute book near you. If you enjoyed our conversation with Professor Lorna Woods, then please like, subscribe and share the Making Sense of Tech Law podcast.